Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. I thought it would be uh, worthwhile. Usually the reason that uh, Shabbat HaGadol historically have been known as the time when the rabbi would give the longest sermon of the year is because it would be the time in which uh, you, first of all, it was historically not common for rabbis to speak in services on a regular basis. Uh, worship was for worship, and Torah study were for, was for other days. But in Shabbat HaGadol, the custom was for the rabbi to speak uh, in order to, uh, to teach uh, the congregation or remind the congregation about the laws of, of Passover. Uh, I'm not going to do that, although if you have questions about the laws of Passover, I'm happy to answer them uh, over Kiddush. But I do want to reflect on something in particular about Passover uh, and what it might have to teach us for uh, this moment in the world in which we live today. And in particular, it's something uh, from the Seder, something that actually my guess is, especially if you uh, tend to do a, a, a relatively quick Seder or you do an abridged Seder for the, for the sake of children, uh, this might be a part of your Seder that ends up hitting the cutting room floor as I believe it always was when I was growing up. I don't want to throw my grandfather under the bus, uh, but I'm pretty sure we never did this part when I was growing up. But it comes in uh, the Magid section, okay, the heart of the Haggadah, uh, the part where we tell the story of Passover. Although what's interesting about the Magid section, of course, is that there isn't really a part in in it that we kind of tell the story in a linear fashion from start to finish. Uh, It all kind of gives prompts for conversation uh, about uh, about the story of Passover. That's a sermon maybe for another time. But there's this part here that I always found really fascinating, uh, despite the fact that I probably never did it or rarely did it when I was a kid. So it goes like this, and maybe it, maybe it uh, jogs your memory. Maaseb Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yehoshua, Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tarfon, Shahayu Mesubin Brak. Okay, so there's a story of Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Joshua and Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria and Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfon who are misubin, who are reclining, who are having a Seder together in B'nai Brak, which is today outside of Tel Aviv in Israel. V'hayu misaprim b'itziat mitzrayim kol halayla ad... So I'll just stop there. They, would, they were uh, telling the story of the exodus from Egypt all of that night. Ad sheba'u ha-talmidehem v'amru lahem until their students came in, so they were telling the story of Passover all night, until their students came in and said to them, our masters, the time has come to recite the morning Shema. Right? So they literally were sitting together and discussing the, uh, the Exodus story all night. Now, this may be a, a 
uh, a difficult question, but does anybody here know anything about any of those rabbis? And I'll just refresh our memory. We're talking about Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yehoshua, Rabbi Joshua, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Tarfo. Anybody know anything about those five rabbis? Yeah. Uh, no, no, you're thinking of Elisha ben Abuya, uh, uh, who was a contemporary of those rabbis, um, or a younger contemporary, I should say, of those rabbis, uh, but, uh, um, but, but not one of those rabbis. But good guess. Yeah, Meryl. Yep. Good. Okay. So we know something about uh, a few of those people. So Rabbi Akiva had a great academy eventually. Uh, he uh, is his students who are uh, noted in the plague that uh, befalls one of the great academies. Uh, and many of the students die, which is uh, why we have a period of mourning between Passover and Shavuot, uh, because we're mourning for the students of Rabbi Akiva's academy. That's an interesting point of fact that might be relevant for our conversations, because the reason uh, tradition says that those students were uh, stricken by a plague is that they uh, lacked respect for one another. Uh, so that's one piece of it. Rabbi Eliezer, as you uh, noted, was the uh, head of the Sanhedrin at one point, right? The, there was a head of the Sanhedrin until that head of the Sanhedrin, it's like a Supreme Court seat, right? Until the head of the Sanhedrin either retires or dies, uh, and then there's a new head of the Sanhedrin. So there were multiple heads of the Sanhedrin, but Rabbi Eliezer was one of them. Yes, David. Uh, yeah, and so Meryl actually mentioned that too, right? Rabbi Akiva... Right, so Rabbi Akiva is one of the uh, one of the martyrs that we read about on Yom Kippur, who was executed by the Romans uh, by virtue of uh, of, of teach for the vir- for teaching Torah, um, although potentially also for uh, inciting insurrection. It was uh, uh, reported that he was uh, involved in the uh, Bar Kokhba rebellion. Uh, and so maybe that's why he was executed by Rome too. Uh, but there's the midrash that uh, when um, uh, when he was uh, dying, he died with the Shema on his lips, uh, and he uh, he uh, was reported to have remarked, uh, "I, you know, I never understood uh, what it meant to fulfill the commandment." Uh, uh, right, how to love your God with uh, the Lord your God with all your soul and all your might and all your heart. And he said, "Bechol uh, nafshecha." Uh, he learned meant nafshecha. Right, even up into the point where they take your life for it. Good. Yeah. Good. Okay. So he came to Judaism late in life. He was uh, functionally illiterate. He was an illiterate shepherd. As legend has it, uh, brought to Torah because of love, because of his uh, his his eventually wife Rachel, uh, and uh, and then became a great uh, a great rabbi at a late age in in life. Anybody know anything else about any of these other rabbis? Gary, oh Rebecca. 
Yes, one of them was uh, a guy who grew a beard overnight. Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria grew a beard overnight. So what happens is that, um, so there's a really, there's really interesting dynamics here among these rabbis. One of the things we know about Rabbi Eliezer, there's a famous story about Rabbi Eliezer when he's head of the Sanhedrin. He's actually deposed as the head of the Sanhedrin because of a debate over the kashrut of an oven of an oven called the oven of Achnai, and he declares and exclaims and stands on principle that the that uh, the, the oven has one kosher status, and every other rabbi says that it has a different status, and he refuses to accept the majority's uh, point of view. So he's uh, so he's banished from the rabbinic court, uh, and in his place. Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria is installed, but Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria is a young man, and uh, he doesn't think anybody's going to take him seriously. So he prays uh, at uh, 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 on the eve of his ascension to the head of the Sanhedrin that he would grow a gray beard so that people would all of a sudden uh, uh, honor him as a uh, as as a you know a, a wise uh, sage, and so. Right after this story in the Haggadah, we have this uh, statement Rabbi Elazar says, Hare ani keven shivim shana, velozachiti shetamar yitziyah mitzrayim baleilot. Right, so he, this is a story, like, I didn't know, uh, I'm, I didn't know that I was supposed to uh, talk about the exodus from Egypt at night until I learned this other teaching. But the rabbis say that this phrase, Hare ani keven shivim shana, I am like a person of 70 years, was because he wasn't really 70 years old. He just grew a beard that made him look like he was 70 years old so that he could be respected as the head of the Sanhedrin. So the fact that that story is about the rise in this text, that story of the oven of Achnai, Rabbi Eliezer on one side of the divide, Rabbi Joshua and the others on the other side of the divide, indicates something powerful about this scene of the rabbis at B'nai Brak. The scene of the rabbis at B'nai Brak is a scene of extreme disputants, all sitting together at the table, people who come from very different kinds of backgrounds and have very different kinds of approaches to theology and law and Torah. These are people of radically opposing perspectives and positions. So uh, Rabbi Tarfon, as an example, is known to be very aristocratic. He comes from a wealthy family, was groomed for rabbinic mastery from a young age. Rabbi Akiva, on the other hand, was, uh, was an illiterate shepherd, as uh, GD pointed out, until the age of 40. Came from poverty. We started from the bottom, now he's here. Right? He's at the top now of, of, of his game. Thank you, I know at least one person would catch that reference. It's a Drake song, you can... Look it up. Anyway, um, so we have different backgrounds and differing perspectives. Rabbi Akiva is known as a sort of zealous, passionate person uh, about Torah. Uh, some of the other scholars in here are much more neutral, much more moderate. They didn't support the Bar Kokhba rebellion. They, they, weren't, uh, in, they, they didn't stand in defiance of Rome in the same way as Rabbi Akiva does. Rabbi Akiva is noted for being um, very meticulous about 
uh, all of the different letters and crowns of the Torah that he could expound Midrashim uh, explanations from all of those just minuscule details and differences in, in the text, right? Not every rabbi had that same approach to interpreting Torah. Some people said, no, you can't derive a law from whether or not there's a crown on a letter. The laws come from the uh, principles of hermeneutics that we have about interpreting Torah. So these are people, these are rabbis of radically different perspectives, opinions, points of view, backgrounds, all sitting together at one table and talking about the Exodus from Egypt overnight. Now, why does the Haggadah preserve this story as central to the central part of the Haggadah, which is telling the story of the Exodus from Egypt? In other words, at the core of the Haggadah's telling about who we are as a people and where we came from is this narrative of five rabbis of opposing views sitting down together and debating and discussing and talking all night long until somebody has to break them because they need to pray. They don't come to any conclusions. They don't come to any decisions. They just talk. That's what's central to our story here. So I think that what the Haggadah is doing here is more than just telling us this is a really nice model for building community for having all these voices together, they're all respectful, they're all engaged in conversation, even if they disagree, they're all talking together. I actually think that it sees this as a religious imperative. So if you look at the very next piece of text in the Haggadah, it says, Baruch HaMakom Baruch Hu, blessed is God. Baruch Shenatan Torah Lemo Yisrael Baruch Hu. Blessed is God for giving the Torah to the people of Israel, blessed is God. In other words, the Haggadah sees that story as an indication of how great God is and sees it as being connected in some way to Torah. How it's connected to Torah, we'll see in just a minute. But just think about that for a second. That the reflection of how great God is is that people of opposing perspectives who have radical fundamental disagreements, even in some ways violent disagreements, or at least intellectually violent disagreements. One person gets expelled from the academy for their disagreement here, but nevertheless, they're sitting at the table talking about the Exodus all night. And the next thing the text says is, how great is God? How great is God for human diversity? How great is God that these people can sit together and actually have a real deep conversation and stay at the table together all night long? And then it says that this is something that's actually connected to Torah. Blessed is God for giving us the Torah. So not only is God great for the diversity represented in B'nai Brak and their ability to hold each other in conversation and honor each other all night long, but God is also great for giving us Torah. And then it says... That the Torah that we're praising God for giving us talks about four children. Keneged Arba'a Banim Dibra Torah. The Torah actually talks about four children. In other words, God is great for giving us a Torah that talks about four different kinds of children. God is great for the diversity that was represented in B'nai Brak, and God is great for giving us a Torah 
that actually reflects that diversity. One of them is wise, one of them is wicked, one of them is innocent, and one of them doesn't know how to ask, or simple, and one doesn't know how to ask. And we usually read this text, I think, as, as, as a sort of, uh, you know, invitation for different kinds of questions, different kinds of approaches to the Exodus from Egypt. That's a nice way of reading. I'm not rejecting that view. But I actually think that what the Haggadah is saying here is that the Torah commands this to happen. That, the, that God is great not only for creating diversity, but actually commanding diversity commanding multiple points of view to be sitting at the table together and discussing the Exodus. It gives off the impression, this piece of the Haggadah, that if you did not have any one of those children at your Seder table, if you did not have any one of those points of view at your Seder table, you have not fulfilled your responsibility. You have not actually done the Haggadah. You have not actually done the Seder you need the wise, the wicked, the simple, and the one who doesn't know how to ask, all to be sitting at the table together. I was thinking about this part of the Seder as I was reading an extraordinary book that I think that everybody in the universe should read, but I think that everybody in this room, at least because you're the ones I'm talking to, everybody in cyberspace who's going to be hearing this sermon, everybody in America should read this book. It's called The Righteous Mind by a professor at NYU, he actually used to be at UVA, uh, named Jonathan Haidt. And he is a moral psychologist. And he talks about the evolutionary biological roots of our morality. And he actually says that though liberals and conservatives tend to see each other as um, opposing ends of a moral spectrum, so that conservatives say that we own morality, and therefore conservatives are both stupid and immoral, or liberals are both stupid and immoral, and liberals look at conservatives and say we own morality, and therefore conservatives are, are, are either stupid or immoral or both. He actually says that both liberals and conservatives uh, hold differing moral sensibilities. And actually human beings are created with, he likens it to, six moral taste buds. And depending on where you fall on the liberal to conservative spectrum, you might have more highly refined moral taste buds uh, in some areas, but not in others. And, if, and where you are on this side of the spectrum, you might have more highly refined moral taste buds in some ends of the spectrum and not others. He says that there are basically six moral, uh, moral taste buds, moral dispositions. There is care, fairness, Liberty, authority, and sanctity. Care, fairness, liberty, authority, and sanctity. And he teaches, and this is actually backed up. Care, fairness, liberty, authority, sanctity. What am I missing? What? And the one who doesn't know how to ask. <laughs> Fairness, liberty, authority, sanctity. All right, well, anyway, I'm going to just present there. What? Care and harm are, care and harm are the, uh, he like gives the alternative of it. Care versus harm, fairness versus uh, cheating, uh, liberty versus oppression, 
uh, um, authority versus whatever the opposite of authority, right? So, okay, I forget what uh, equality is in fairness. Uh, what? Right. Okay. So, let's just stick with those five for a second. It's not really important what the sixth one is. Okay. Uh, <laughs> There is a sixth one, I'm just forgetting it off the top of my head. And he argues this is based on, um, on, on actually real data, real research, that people who self-identify as liberal or who, or who reflect liberal points of view uh, have very highly attuned sensibilities to the, uh, to the care instinct, the care taste bud, and to a certain degree, the liberty taste bud and the fairness taste bud, but actually uh, tend to lack or, uh, or, or aren't really responsive to the other taste buds, to, to sanctity, to authority. Whereas conservatives actually um, possess all of the taste buds, but in potentially in the care areas and in the liberty areas, maybe slightly lower amounts, so they're all kind of roughly equivalent with each other. And based on where you are on that matrix, that's where your uh, moral uh, intuitions come about. So the point that he makes is that we usually think of morality as something rational and logical. And he says that that's actually not true. Psychologically, biologically, our morality uh, is not rational. Rational is what we do to explain the moral decisions we've already made with our gut. And that's really important because it means that, uh, that there's, first of all, not, a, uh, not necessarily a right morality and a wrong morality. It means that we actually don't uh, think about our morality in terms of right and wrong. We think of our morality in terms of where our gut leads us. He calls it an elephant, where our elephant leads us. Our rider is our rational mind, right? So if you, want to make a, if you want to make a moral argument to somebody, you actually need to talk to their elephant and not to their rider, because their rider isn't actually going to be able to direct the elephant. The rider has to follow wherever the elephant goes. All right, that's really important, he says, when you think about the contemporary context, the contemporary political landscape and religious landscape, where we have really extreme polar divisions among people, and uh, that in order to understand and persuade each other, we can't operate from the presumption that one side is right and one side is wrong, but rather one side is gravitating to a particular moral framework, and the other side gravitates to a different particular moral framework, and we actually need to have a conversation between those moral frameworks. But here's the other thing that he says that I think was mind-blowing. He says that liberals tend to wish, right, they have this fantasy that the, that the whole world was liberal, that we do everything in the liberal way, and conservatives tend to actually have the same fantasy, that we do everything in the conservative way. But the truth is you actually need both of these forces existing in tension and in harmony. He likens it to the Eastern idea of a yin and yang. Yin and yang aren't adversaries, they're opposites, but they're held together in tension because you need both of them. You both need a side that says, we should change everything and now, and gets a lot of uh, uh, joy out of, out of change and by uh, moving things forward, and you need a side that hews to order, because actually order is a really precious and important thing for human society. 
Sanctity is a really precious and important thing for human society. And if you don't have a side that is kind of holding that line, then chaos inevitably ensues. But if you only have a side that's hewing to order and authority, then oppression can easily ensue. And so he suggests that, that liberals don't like conservatives because they think that order can lead to oppression, which is true. And conservatives tend to not like liberals because uh, the desire for change and equality and fairness and, 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 and caring for all those things can lead to disorder, which is actually a very dangerous thing, which is true. So in order to have a moral society, you actually need both of those ends of the spectrum existing in tension along with each other. Because if you don't, then you tend to produce a lot of oppression and a lot of immorality. It's no wonder why the most abusive societies in human history have been autocratic societies. Because autocracies exist only in one side of a moral framework. So you have Nazi Germany that exists exclusively on the conservative side of the, of the moral spectrum. And you have communist Russia that exists on the other side of the moral spectrum. It's an autocracy on the left side or an autocracy on the right side. And the brilliance of American pluralistic democracy, our founders intuited this by saying that we, that there's actually, that, that, that tyranny exists when there are, uh, when there's a dominance of one view over the other. When the majority is able to have exclusive control against the minority. Or vice versa, when the minority has exclusive control against the majority, that's where oppression resides. And so they created a system in which there was vigorous debate among a diverse and pluralistic group of people with the assumption that more often than not, when you allow for that kind of debate to exist, that's where righteousness is able to flourish. That's where goodness is able to come out, and that's where the greatest good for the greatest amount of people can be produced. Only in the existence of tension between left and right, between young and old, between differing backgrounds, and between rich and poor, only in the existence and respect of that tension and the dialectic and conversation that's able to exist within that tension, that's where a righteous society can thrive and flourish. That's what our founders intuited when they created the system that we had. And the system works insofar as that conversation is honored when those differences are respected and the debate is able to take place. And it's why especially, I think, that they put the power to declare war in the hands of Congress. They put the power to declare war in the hands of Congress because they presumed that oppression could inevitably exist when one person however good that person might be, however wise that person might be, was able to follow their own moral impulses. And instead, because most of us exist on one with, with more highly attuned 
moral sensibilities in some ends of the spectrum than the other, they put the ultimate moral power or the ultimate source of potential moral power in the hands of a deliberative body that is at least theoretically, ideologically, and morally diverse so that those conversations and those decisions uh, could be hashed out in the tension and dynamic that exists between liberal and conservative with the assumption that goodness, righteousness, and truth emerges, liberty emerges from the harmony and tension of yin and yang, from dark and light, from night and day, from left and right. And that's why our tradition, I think wisely, gives us the story of B'nai Brak as a model and the four children as a command because we can't leave Egypt. We can't, ex we can't escape society's systems of oppression by only hewing to one moral voice, to one moral disposition, to one moral inclination. Rather, we need the tension and dialectic of wise and wicked and simple and doesn't know how to ask, all existing and asking their questions of each other at the table in order to leave Egypt. It's not a surprise, it's not a coincidence that we read Parshat Sav today. Because Parshat Sav, I think, reflects this at its heart. The notion of Mishkan reflects this at its heart. Mishkan exists in harmony between all opposing sides of the Israelites. The Israelites are camped all around it on all sides. The Mishkan exists right in the middle. And God appears where the Mishkan is. God appears where the tabernacle is. Right in the middle of the tabernacle. As if to say that all of the forces exist in tension and God is to be found at the center. God is to be found by virtue of the forces existing in tension. And that's why the holiest of the sacrifices, the one that we get at the end of this week's parsha, is Zevach Shlamim, the sacrifice of Shalom. Shalom is from the root Shalem, meaning fullness, completion, harmony. Peace exists by the harmony of opposing forces, not the gravitational pull of one force versus the other. Peace doesn't exist in an all-conservative world, and peace does not exist in an all-liberal world. Peace exists in a world where there is tension and conversation and respect between both sides. And it's why the priest, the high priest Aaron, is known in rabbinic literature as Ohev Shalom Verodef Shalom, Ohev Tabriot Umekorvan Torah. Aaron, the priest, is the one who loves peace, pursues peace, loves people, and brings them close to Torah. As we engage in our seders, hopefully at tables with people of multiple point of, points of view, engaging in spirited conversation, they would be able to learn from each other and know that God exists in the tension and in the harmony that we bring by bringing those opposing voices together. Shabbat Shalom, Chag Sameach.